In all cultural revolutions, there are periods of chaos and confusion, times when grave mistakes are made. If we fear mistakes, doing things wrongly, constantly evaluating ourselves, we will never make the academy a culturally diverse place where scholars and the curricula address every dimension of that difference. Bell Hooks, in her chapter, A Revolution of Values, in her book, Teaching to Transgress. Welcome to season four of Safe Topics. In this series, we're talking about books. And other things. Yes, other things, but we're going to go deep on some books. Not like a full book review, but like a chapter by chapter review, which I guess adds up to a full book eventually. <laughs> yes. And we're going to talk about anything else that makes us think about how we teach and why we teach. And we want you, the audience, to join us. Listen for details about how to do that at the end of this episode. All right, here we go. We just talked about this right before we hit record was, you know, these changes of in the name of equity and, and in the spirit of equity, you know, sometimes the mistakes that are made in the beginning um, can be thought of as fatal and final. And, and that can not just slow our progress, but even make us kind of work backwards, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we're talking about these mistakes kind of on lots of levels, and so maybe we can fill in some of the details there. I mean, what, one of the mistakes that I'm I'm usually feeling first is the one I might make within the relationships I have with my colleagues, right? Like, I don't want to say something that's going to make a colleague think that, oh, God, Curry is that way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, and or be leading a, a, a committee uh, and, and we get into some controversial territory and I say something that takes us in the wrong direction or even in my classroom, right? When a student shares something and I, I'm worried that I'll, how I respond to it will, will be a mistake. And so that fear, that fear, right? Um, at that level, just that kind of relationship level is something that I, I grapple with and deal with. Um, I think it's pretty healthy and wise to like consider how other people are viewing you right yeah. and and how this is going to land even though you never really know how it's going to land right the the issue i have with that is there's permissions that are not weighted the same like for you to do that may be perceived as oh this is the way that you are in in not just a kind of like i can't believe he thinks that kind of way but I think more importantly and worse would be the way of like, it's static, right? Like you're presenting, this is how I feel right now. Right. And if I learned, I would have the opportunity to think differently. Yep. But if you pigeonhole, if you like put me in this place of this is who I am to you always now, then my learning is not even going to be recognized and it's not going to change your thinking as I change mine. Yeah, right. Yeah, which which is why, and, and we're going to get into this, Bell Hooks is constantly pointing to the important role relationships play in this work, in this kind, in this revolutionary work that, that this book is calling us towards. And relationships are so important, real authentic relationships to address the kind of fear I'm describing, to address the kind of mistake I might commit. Because you're right. What I say in a moment is not me, or it all is it is also me, but who I am with you and how you hear it and, and get me to rethink it and we negotiate together is how I grow and learn and become, right? Um, I won't say a better version of myself, but a, a, a version of myself that's more inclusive of your voice, your your ways of thinking, your ways of knowing, and vice versa, right? We 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 do this work together. Yeah. So establishing the relationship is really important because yeah. if you don't have a relationship with someone and they hear something that you say and it doesn't land the way that you intend, or maybe it does, and that is still problematic, then that relationship is not going to form in a way that is that bi-directional type of learning understanding, right? Yeah. If I know you for years and you say something in a meeting, I could come to you and say, is that really how you meant that? Because 
to me, this is how it came off. And maybe others would perceive it that way as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So let's, let's, let's get into the chapter a little more directly. Um, and because yeah, so go ahead. The, the setting, right. The setting yes. is, you know, Bell Hooks talks about going to a reunion and, and, and how she hasn't been to these kind of, you know, high school reunions, um, in her hometown before, uh, but she decided to go to one, right? And and when she went, the interesting about thing about this one was that it was the first desegregated um, union, right? Which which I think in a contemporary context can seem really strange that like yeah. they would have the black reunion over here and they would have the white reunion over there. Right. Um, I bet it wasn't strange at all, right? It, right. It, in the area and in the era that she's growing up in and and that she's coming back to you i think the strangeness is actually that it's that it's integrated and she talks also about you know a relationship that she had with a friend a white friend and how that family really embraced her and kind of walked the walk of you know that racial equality um without having the talk without having the vocabulary without even maybe even mentioning it which which could be perceived as as an issue but it was just kind of like they just did it because they they felt like there was not a problem with, you know, driving her to school, having her over for dinner and things like that. Um, and and it, it does kind of get to a question of like, with that kind of, it's weird to say it like a pure goodness, but like a goodness that doesn't come from the learning of academic terms and theories and critical race theory and all of these things. But, but a goodness that comes from really their religion. Um, yeah. And like, can we solely the the um, efforts of, of people like that, that have that kind of goodness inherent in what they do when we introduce, you know, structures and, and, and frames of reference that that complicate those relationships when the simplicity of it is really what made her feel included. Right. Okay. I want to read a couple quotes to just sort of underpin what you've just said. Sure. So the friend that she's referring to, a white, a white guy, his name's Ken. And she says, Ken's parents were religious. Their faith compelled them to live out a belief in racial justice. So, and then just below that, this sort of revolutionary action that she's like, says she felt like she was living history was having dinner at their house. She says, I was 16 years old. I felt then as though we were making history, that we were living the dream of democracy, creating a culture where equality, love, justice, and peace would shape America's destiny. So sitting at the table eating food, this is the 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 the, the action, right? The the but it's it's a being, it's just being present in the space with this family, right? That Bell Hooks points to as this sort of cultural revolutionary moment. Let me read one more quote that follows this up. So this is on the next page. She says, remembering this past, I am most struck by our passionate commitment to a vision of social transformation rooted in fundamental belief in our radical democratic idea of freedom and justice for all. Our notion of social change were not fancy. There was no elaborate postmodern political theory shaping our actions. We were simply trying to change the ways we went about our everyday lives so that our values and habits of being would reflect our commitment to freedom. So to your point, right? So so that so that's that kind of like live your stuff, like walk your walk. That's that's what I hear in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even like with their values rooted in Christianity, breaking bread, you know, like th- these kind of things that that um feel kind of not superficial, but simple and, yes. and very kind of just like having dinner at someone's house. Like she felt like this was a revolution of values, right? Like thinking about this and, and is it as simple as like, you know, if you're white, invite some black people over for dinner? No, of course it's not. Right. Right. But there is, you know, well, let's also talk about her parents were kind of like on the fence about this. They did. They were like, well, I don't know if that's a good idea. And to me, that can be interpreted a few different ways. And one of the ways it could be interpreted is, you know, why are the parents even questioning this? This is a good thing, you know. But then it's also like, well, they are the parents. They're there to protect. 
And this may not be good, not just in the situation of like what happens at dinner. This might not be good in the situation that happens in like how others are going to perceive that. Because even on one of their rides to school, there was a very real threat where some white guys tried to run them off the road. Right. Um, Okay. So in our last our last conversation, you challenged me to listen, um, to not immediately try to relate to uh, voices and experiences that are shared. And I feel like there's moments in this chapter where I am immediately relating, like like this description of faith that compels a belief in racial racial justice, this this practice of of real relationships around a table. I mean, you and I share that kind of thing. Um, and even the the really, I mean, this is a moment that like I got emotional on page 26, um, where Hooks is ta- thinking about this reunion, hoping to see Ken again and wanting to simply say, I love you to him, right? Like those things I can relate to. I have relationships like that, but there's moments where, you know, I wanna practice what you challenged me to practice and just listen, because I can't relate, because it, it is not my experience, and it's something I, I I just can't understand at that level. So I just want to read, just so on page 24, I just want to read this passage and just sort of, just, to, you know, to practice that, right? So Hook says, and this is after desegregation. So this is her experience being forced to shift schools for the sake of desegregation, said her and her classmates. We had to make the journey and thus bear the responsibility of making desegregation a reality. We had to give up the familiar and enter a world that seemed cold and strange, not our world, not our school. We were certainly on the margin, no longer at the center, and it hurt. It was such an unhappy time. I still remember my rage when we had to awaken at an hour so an early hour so that we could be bused to school before the white students arrived. Right. And so there's a lot in Bell Hooks's work here that inspires me as a teacher and makes me think about pedagogy and makes me think about practice, um, makes me think about how I practice equity inclusion as a white male. But there's many things in her in her writing that I just I just want to appreciate and just sort of sort of have in my mind right and as 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 just a listening act right and that's one of them and the dichotomies that exist with like what happens on the ground versus the policies that are enacted right or or the policies that are written is important to consider here because right after that quote that you read it says here that yet once again the burden of this transition was placed on us yeah the white school was desegregated but in the classroom in the cafeteria and in most social spaces racial apartheid prevailed and 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 there's much more on this kind of thing in in this chapter and in chapters to come because it's like where is the burden of responsibility right who is that placed on and yeah when we recognize there's a problem maybe as faculty as administrators as you know even politicians and board members all of these people can make decisions that are going to affect what happens on the ground what happens between students but really when you desegregate a school yeah we feel like that's a big moment cultural shifts we're going to experience some issues but the actual dealing with that is placed on the students, right? right. Yeah. With the busing, with with the 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 racial segregation that's still going to exist in social spaces, that I would argue should not be forced to be integrated in all of those social spaces. That there, there's a survival element there. There's there's a wanting to feel okay element of like I, I need to be around people that understand how I'm experiencing the, this social setting. You know, and I think we do that also as faculty. We do that. You know, we find our people and that makes us feel safe. It also can create a situation of silos. It also can create a um, division and and invisible barriers being constructed, you know, and and those are problems that we always face, too. But 
there is, um, you know, that level of comfort that we don't want to uh, uh, tear away from people. Yeah. I mean, so, so let's broaden that a little bit. So I'm on 28. She says, what we are witnessing today in our everyday life is not an eagerness on the parts of neighbors and strangers to develop a world perspective, but a return to narrowness, nationalism, isolationism, and xenophobia. That's pretty harsh, but it, I mean, well, it's, and it's true, right? I, um, she's cutting to it right away, I think, is what I mean to say. Um, and what I, what I respond to that with is thinking about what David Brooks once said, the most segregated day of the week is Sunday because we all go to our own churches. And yeah. I even think, I even think in my own classrooms, day one, as my students filter in, they tend to sit in little groups, right? You know, I can, I can just look out and I can see women in certain spaces. I can see students like of color in students in certain spaces, white students in other spaces, um, students of different abilities in certain spaces. and. If I'm just going to say like, okay, my class is an inclusive one. You all do the work to get to know each other. You all do the work to mix and I'm not in there facilitating it, right? That's probably not the best approach because it's human. It's human. We want familiarity. We want, we want that safety, right? But if, if we're going to practice the kind of democracy, the right, that, that sort of teaching as a practice of freedom that Hooks describes, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, um, it, it's not enough to just say, talk to each other. <laughs> you know like do that work <laughs> no that's never enough and and this goes back to elements of leadership a modeling which she talked about before in the previous chapter yes the willingness to be the the first one to be vulnerable yeah. you know as you know curry i've been taking jujitsu and it's been transforming my life yes and i gotta tell you when you go to a jujitsu class the instructor of course models the drill that we're going to do and models it with somebody, they do it, they do both sides of it, right? They play both roles. And then you know what you do, they partner you up with somebody and you have to physically be on top of another person. Yeah. You, have to, you have to manipulate their body in ways and yours. And there's a lot going on there that is, I, I would say most people would be really uncomfortable with doing that, you know? Yeah. yeah. But since the instructor does it first, and yeah. it looks so awesome when they do it. Sure. You know, it's not as awesome when you do it. But it, <laughs> it, there's something there about like they're showing you like, look, this is what I do. And, yeah. and this is how to do it. And then we go ahead and do it. There, there's kind of like you're just jumping in and doing it, you know, and, and, you know, with a bunch of pairs, maybe there's like five pairs. They can't be at each one of those pairs, just like we can't be at each one of those groupings of desks when we get students together. So there has to be a trust that our modeling is working and yeah. there has to be a trust that people can be people. And the lesson may be in, if I'm not over your shoulder telling you exactly how to interact with each other and, you know, be on task and all of that, that at least other ways of interacting and connecting will happen so that the task then can be completed from a place of community rather than strangerness word that I'm making up right now. Yes, yes. Well, if we if we take this book and want to apply it, then the aim, our aim is to build community. That's that's like that's the goal because we want teaching and learning to happen within community. Okay. So, we've got to then acknowledge we are a group on day 1. We are a group of difference. We have different neural processes. We are a group of different ethnic backgrounds. We are a group of different genders. We are a group of different ages. We are a group of different languages, right? We are a group of different abilities. And which means the first, your first, and this kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, your first move to share something may not land as easily as it does when you're with your people, like with your group, with your the, the, the folks that you feel the most comfortable with, because we are all different in this space. So it's going to take some work for me to communicate to you. I've done a lot of work to try to clarify my prompts as your teacher. They're not going to be clear that you're going to have problems with them, even though I've done my best to make them clear. And same, when you share something in class, we're going to want to really hear what you're saying. And so so your so if we use uh, jujitsu as an analogy, 
you know, you are a group of different bodies and different maneuvers. And it's weird to suddenly connect with a strange body and, and sort of the, those maneuvers. And experience but, levels, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But seeing the model and then grappling with bodies is what builds that community space. Become You become more confident in your ability to maneuver. Um, Hooks in the next chapter calls out voices that what you want in a, in a, in a class is voices. Let those voices speak. Let those voices be heard in every single class and every single student, even if you have 60 or 100. And she says, even if the voice is sign language, right? Even if that voice is Mm -hmm. not audible, but but of a different mode and medium, it's still that student's presence. And if we allow and and ask for and she says require Require. every Mm -hmm. student's voice, that's that is a strategy that is a tangible actionable strategy we can use towards community there's a real issue we have to address with this though because some people would approach this kind of work with you know you saying that people are coming in with different backgrounds different ethnic and racial identities different gender identities different you know all of these different things we've heard the response from faculty and others that that doesn't matter in my class. I don't care what right. you are, right? Right. And there's a dichotomy here because it, it, at look, the world doesn't make sense. As a sociologist, I, I am very comfortable with the fact that things that happen in society don't make sense to people. And like part of my job is to try to help make sense of it. But then in the end, it doesn't make sense to me. So those all can exist simultaneously, much in the way that I would say, you know what, in a jujitsu class, it doesn't matter what our ethnicity is, our gender and all of this. But of course, it also does. Right. And there are points where it matters less. And there are points where it is the main focus and emphasis. And we need to be comfortable. I would argue we need to be comfortable with all of that. If you say race doesn't matter. You got to talk about that very specifically of probably where it matters less. And if you say that it always matters, I think you need to step back and see the spots where there is not such an emphasis on that. Maybe that thing wasn't said because of the way they feel about a certain group and allow for it's a very religious term. And I don't know, you know, it's for me, it's controversial. And I, I, I don't even like saying the word and I wish I had a better word for it, but it's grace right? It's this idea of like, like the benefit of the doubt, I think is another one, right? Yeah. Um, I I mean, I just get really, really upset when I hear like intention doesn't matter. Because then then I, I think you are just condemning people. And you're just casting them off as like, you as a very being are wrong. And that is the same shit that was done to minoritized groups for most of history and even you know contemporary if we look at today is it that that's still happening in a lot of ways yes okay i want to talk about embracing change and i also want to come back to the revolution of values there's so much okay but let's 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 stay with the revolution of values for a second because i want you know these quotes that you read are really good because right following that last one that you read it says, you know, um, here, finally, we are going, this is in, in the book, finally, we are all going to break through collective academic denial and acknowledge that the education most of us received and were giving was not and is never politically neutral. Right. Yes. I, I would almost argue nothing neutral. Put any kind of word before that word neutral and, and you're going to find truth. Anyway, back to the book. Though it was evident that change would not be immediate, there was tremendous hope that this process we had set in motion would lead to a fulfillment of a dream of education as the practice of freedom. Mm-hmm. Now, with this, I want to go right into this idea because, you know, before the popularity um, of the term safe spaces, Bell Hooks writes about challenging the idea that a classroom should always be safe. <laughs> I never use that word. I, I I don't like the terms safe spaces. Well, yeah. I don't even like the term brave spaces. I say spaces where we can engage civilly, right? Places yes. where we can feel empowered. Yes. But I, I'm totally on board with bell hooks here. 
Um, I, I don't even believe in safety as a real, as something that exists in reality. I'll go that far. I don't believe it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, so I want to hear more. And, and, and let's start with what does safe mean? And, and when, when Bell Hooks talks about it, what is she, how is she defining safe? And, and what does she mean by d- like democratized space as maybe the alternative to that? Well, I think safe in her assessment here, uh, my interpretation, my own interpretation of her writing would be, you know, where um, that we're safe not to talk about hard things, right? That that it, it shouldn't lead to difficult, challenging conversations that could erupt into chaos and, um, you know, people fe- having their feelings hurt or being called out as racist or, you know, all of those kind of things. So safe for a kind of white supremacist structure. I think that that's what she's saying. Safety through complicity, through carrying on as is traditional, blah, 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 right? Yeah, I, I think that's what she is calling safe. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's, yeah, it's safe from, as the teacher, sort of disrupting the authority or the traditional forms of teaching. She talks about the kind of We've all been taught in a certain traditional mode. And when we start teaching, we replicate that mode. I think I'm skipping to the next chapter again. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. kind of, that's what she's, when she talks about white spaces or the whiteness of the classroom, that's what she's talking about. She's talking about those Eurocentric, authoritative, dominating sort of structures that are in the classroom, right? Um, And so to disrupt that is to get into a place that's no longer safe, right? but I think I think it's both sides, right? It's the teacher feeling unsafe and uncomfortable, but also students feeling unsafe or uncomfortable, right? That that's that's that kind of that's what she's challenging. Like, in other words, let me say it this way: I feel like Hooks is in, inviting us to be challenged and to struggle with discomfort. That that's part of this work, and in building relationships and building community. This should be the expectation. We do those things to get to these things. Yeah. We we build the community so that when conflict arises, we can handle it and we can handle it with trust. That's a big thing. That is a huge thing. I think yeah. when you try to do this, that's why like one-off workshops about diversity, inclusion, equity with, with randos coming in that don't know each other is a bad idea. <laughs> that's a bad idea. It could it could turn out great, right? If you have an excellent facilitator, you have people in the room, it works out. But I would say it's a bad idea because what's your foundation there? And if you come into a classroom and you didn't do the work of building the community, you didn't do the work of being vulnerable yourself and modeling that, you didn't do the work of um, not just establishing relationships with your students, but ensuring that they can have some level of relationships with each other. And then you get to some hard shit or something happens, some current event that is like, I'm an educator, I got to talk about this, you know. Uh, whether it be George Floyd, whether it be, you know, whatever, right? A a war in Ukraine, like whatever it may be. Um, And you don't have that foundation. Well, no shit, you're not going to feel good about what happens next. And you're going to be scared shitless of like what could happen, even if those things never happen at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So let me, let me, let me introduce this because we do want to be careful here because I think in just saying like, fuck it, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to jump into discomfort. Like we can do some real harm. Like we can, we can respond to folks and and just, and, and ruin things. <laughs> so I, a, a, a conference I attended a few years ago, this was the equity-minded teaching conference um, through um, uh, USC. Um, they, they had this really great uh, model where it was basically a grid and on one side was intentional and then the other sort of part of the grid was accidental so like i knew this topic was going to come up and i planned it into the lesson right that's intentional the other one is accidental like like i had no idea this was going to come up and it just happened so that's that's that part of the like Mm -hmm. the grid the other sides are productive or unproductive so like whether I intentionally did it doesn't mean it's going to like land well or get us to good spaces. It could be unproductive. And so if that happens that I have to pause and reflect and rethink and do better next. Right. Um, 
but same with accidental, like accidental could also be productive. And so right. the middle of the grid was all about strategies. And, and, and so I want to go, do you want to respond to that? Cause I have a quote I want to read. No, 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 no. Go continue. Okay. So, so this is hooks referencing Peter McLaren yep. who says, when we try to make culture an undisturbed space of harmony and agreement, where social relations exist within cultural forms of uninterrupted accords, we subscribe to a form of social amnesia in which we forget that all knowledge is formed in his, forged in histories that are played out in the field of social antagonisms. And then Hooks responds to that with, many professors lack strategies to deal with antagonisms in the classroom. So I think that's a really key piece for us to be to be thinking about and talking about. It's, all right, you and I want to embrace democratized classroom spaces, not necessarily safe spaces, not these harmonious sort of, right, antagonism free spaces, but we need to have strategies to make the discussions we have in those spaces productive. Yeah. So what are I the mean... strategies, Sean? <laughs> Just kidding. We don't. So the other thing I think we talked about earlier before we started recording was that what's really great about revisiting hooks is that she's talking about shit that we're talking about. Right. And people have been trying to practice these and solve these problems and, you know, come up with best practices in quotes. And we're still here. So we want to be careful on this podcast to say, like, here's the 10 things you should do more. We're just talking about this and reflecting on this so we can practice it. Right. And, and she talks later, like right after that, about like old guard, new guard and, you know, how it's hard to kind of disrupt these kind of structures. Um, I, I I do think that we do. She talks about this, the need for spaces too, to, to kind of practice these things. Yeah. And with the exclusion of students. Right. That's like right. Because, because there was like a time when she tried to do this with one of her um, colleagues and. Uh, they brought students, but they found that there was not as much honesty. And I see that whenever yeah. we have student speakers or student panels, I feel like there is, you know, a hesitancy to be your authentic faculty self because, yeah. you know, you want to save face in front of the students. Yeah. Um, and also, you also feel like maybe that the students aren't here to hear about our bullshit, right? Um, they're there for another purpose, right? Right. So you could call that you could call that a safe space, I suppose. I, I feel like that is an interpretation of that word. You and I have a podcast that's a safe space for dangerous topics, right? And I think we're safe topics podcast, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But so that's now you're in embracing change. I'm so happy you're taking us to the next chapter because there's lots of stuff I want to talk about here. Well, that's um, the dichotomy that we're we're trying to reveal even with our title, right? Safe safe topics. Right. But they're not safe, right? But right. they're things that we need to engage in, right? These are these are topics that are worthy of engagement. Heck yeah. And and I I would introduce the language of community of practice, which is a sort of a newer sort of, you know, a buzzword. Sure. But I like it applied to this. So this what you're talking about is on page 36, this faculty group that wanted to come together to do this work. And in the process of that, we're working out some, she says, horribly racist stuff, right? Um, Absolutely. But the community part of that is so important because they were committed to each other, to listen to each other, to work through things together. And it wasn't appropriate that students were there because the students are just not in that same space, right? That 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 they could be included in another space, but in that space, this community needed to have, needed to live, needed to be, right, with each other and work that shit out. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, so in introducing that, let me start with a quote from chapter three. Yes. Frame, uh, bell, frame our discussion. Bell Hooks, Embracing Change, Teaching in a Multicultural World. Bell Hooks writes, despite the contemporary focus on multiculturalism in society, particularly in education, there is not nearly enough practical discussion of the ways classroom settings can be transformed so that learning is inclusive. In the effort to respect and honor the social reality and experiences of groups in this society who are non-white is to be reflected in the pedagogical process, in a pedagogical process. Then as teachers on all levels from elementary to university settings, 
we must acknowledge that our styles of teaching may need to change. Let's face it. Most of us are taught in classrooms where styles of teaching reflected the notion of a single norm of thought and experience, which we were encouraged to believe was universal. This has been just as true for non-white teachers as for white teachers. Most of us learn to teach emulating this model. As a consequence, many teachers are disturbed by the political implications of a multicultural education because they are losing, they fear losing control in a classroom where there is no one way to approach a subject, only multiple ways and multiple references. I'm so happy you chose that quote. I, that was the quote I was going to choose too. And that's how she opens up the chapter. So, you know, this is a banger. It's just like, <laughs> wow. Okay. Let's start here. And yep. um, let me put the book down and do a little <laughs> meditation session because I don't know if I can take the intensity of what's going to happen next. Well, and, and let me, let's bring it, let's go straight to that intensity. So this is a couple pages into the chapter. She writes, educators are poorly prepared when we actually confront diversity this is why so many of us stubbornly cling to old patterns. And I feel like that that's one of those writerly moves where you thread the introduction throughout the paper, the, 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 the chapter or the paper or whatever it is you're writing. Right. And it just, it reminds me of what we were just talking about this, the fear of the mistake, the, 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 the assumption that in my class race doesn't matter or that, you know, not acknowledging that there's no such thing as a politically neutral space, like everything we were just talking about, I think applies um, to these quotes here. And this is another thing, Sean, just as you were saying, the intensity of this chapter, I, I, I wanna sit with this with you. I don't wanna be preachy about this with you. Like, I don't wanna say like, we should, we shouldn't. I wanna more just be challenged by this stuff and just be honest and kind of, you know, how can I grow and, and respond to, to, to these challenges, this intensity um, in productive ways? So to the quote that I read at the beginning of the chapter, just one little line there. We must acknowledge that our styles of teaching may need to change. It's interesting. She provides a little bit of an out there of like may, but, yeah. but what, what, okay. If somebody told you, I cut sugar out of my diet, what would your response be? Well, I would be, well, okay, that that's an interesting choice. Good for you. Uh, I want to know like why, like what what are you working okay. on? What are you? Yeah. I want to be healthier. I, I stopped smoking. Yeah. Same, same. Are you like, so this is a personal decision? Are you feeling pressured from someone else? Like, and, or what, what, what is this working towards? Sure. Yeah. Now, what if I told you I was diagnosed as having type two diabetes? So I cut sugar out of my diet. Yeah, uh, I would feel a little more like emotional, sympathetic, right? Like, well, you have to make this choice. Like, boom. Yes. I, I there was a spot on my lung, so I stopped smoking. Same. Yeah. Like, you, you know, have to, right? Yes. Yes. COVID nineteen. We know we had to change our teaching. Yes. There was no choice. We could not do things the same. Yes. That is not as noble as making the change yourself. Sure. When it's by force or by like extreme pressure or like you're going to die now or you're not going to be able to do your job, whatever it may be, you know, obviously for dramatic effect, it's, we're not we're not in that same situation, but it was a big deal. Yeah. Now we're returning to what I would call a freedom of choice in how we're going to do things next. Yeah. And if we return to the ways clinging to the old ways, as right. she says, clinging, right? right. Yeah. Um, missed opportunity. That's right. It, if, if I told you that I was going to change my teaching style because I just want to get better, right? Yeah. Be like, oh, well, that's great. Yeah. Tell me more. Right. But if I told you I had to teach online because of the pandemic, it's just a foregone conclusion that like, well, you had to, yeah. right? So if you have to, the discussion ends yeah. there. Right. If you say you're going to, to improve with no kind of catalyst, no kind of uh, catastrophic catalyst, it 
opens the conversation rather than closes it. Do you feel me there? Yeah, totally. hundred percent. Yeah. So in this, she's opening this conversation of saying, we got to acknowledge these things are going to change. And we should look at the way we're addressing multicultural education and how that change needs to be facilitated. Yeah. So she she also brings up later in this chapter um, a professor who makes changes to the canon, the curriculum, because students are complaining. And she critiques that. And she says that's another form of putting the burden of the work on the students, right? So a professor who's making a basically accommodations rather than what you're calling for, sort of a, a shift in mindset. How do I make my pedagogy and my practice more inclusive of different ways of knowing, ways of thinking? Instead, it's I'll change when I have to. I'll change when a student complains. I'll change when a student can't access this particular thing in my LMS, whatever it is. Um, so it's a different mindset. And so how do we get to that mindset? Like what what inspires us as teachers to want to embrace radical uh, engage, engaged pedagogy, right? Um, I, I, we can explore that. Like, I want to hear your thoughts on that. And I also, this, this, I have some, I have some thoughts too. So I'll just shut up. <laughs> that goes back to relationships. If you do it because students are demanding it or there's some top down, you know, authority telling you that there's this mandate of we got to do things this way. That's that's the thing forcing you to change. And one of the ways that Bell Hooks kind of shows this is the 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 introduction and, and the demand for more multicultural type of education is when she talks about the story of um, uh, white instructors, white female instructors, I think specifically talking about uh, or, or, or teaching Toni Morrison in their literature classes. Yes. And when she talks about that, she says that, you know, it was almost an accomplishment for these white women to say, look, I taught Toni Morrison and never mentioned race. And to me, that does such, <laughs> it's a dishonoring um, uh, Toni Morrison, obviously, but it's right. a discrediting of the importance of that, not just to the writing and not just to the reader, but to the students that you're teaching, right. that you're not giving them a real teaching of Toni Morrison. You're giving them not even, I wouldn't even call it watered down. You're giving them a a very much uh you're given it's the antithesis of of how that should be taught in my view yeah. and i i believe your view holds more weight here just the, because that's your discipline so i'd be interested to hear what you had to say about that sure well and it's so yes absolutely and this makes me back to the productive unproductive intentional accidental right and so you know if i'm gonna it went when i incorporate authors of color um I, I'm it's so important to introduce the biography. Even I, I would say when I introduce any author, any author that comes into the class, it's who is the person, when are they writing? This is this is the work that we're going to be addressing. And then what are the historical forces acting upon it? What are the historical forces emanating from it? And how are we in our little our, our positionality and our historical moment engaged with that? That that that's so important. That's so key. It's foundational. Not, yeah, exactly. And, and and it's so important, I would argue, because of my discipline, because of how we teach critical reading, critical authorship, critical thinking. And in addition to embracing Hooks's call to authentic community, right, where we all labor in a field of knowledge, uh, uh, in a field to produce knowledge together, right? But I think even more than that, there's a foundation that you're building yes. and, and a point of reference, right? Because you can present any work to anybody and, right. and you're going to get you're going to get the responses of, I thought this was a literature class. Why am I learning about feminism? That's in the book. That's in the book. I, 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 I'm learning about this. Why are we learning about all this black culture? Right. Yeah. yeah. Or like. Hey, this is a literature class, and we got Hemingway and we got Shakespeare. Where are my people in this? Yeah, right. And and so when you do the work of like introducing the era, the setting, the the context from in which this person's writing, their biography, who they were as a person, 
you got that point of reference. Oh yeah, you caught that line. Yeah, remember that 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 you know Hemingway was this expat that was like kind of just gallivanting around Europe and smoking and drinking it up and having a grand old time. Yeah, he's a privileged dude, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and and you notice the privilege there. But remember, we talked about why he's even coming from this, uh, you know, in that in that particular way. Yeah. Well, and so let me add to that: the content that we offer our students in the class is a thing they are learning. So, so knowledge of Hemingway's, knowledge of Shakespeare's plays, whatever. But how we do the teaching and how we do the learning is something that's transmitted also. So Hooks is using this language of transformation constantly in this chapter. Sure. And I wanna take the, the, the core of that word formation and just, just think about that for a second. Students in my class are formed by the practices of my classroom. This is why Hook says and, and reminds us, and we all know this is true, we tend to teach the way we were taught. Like mm -hmm. we are formed as students through the processes of this class, this class, this class, this class. It becomes something we internalize. So for me, for Hooks to say, it is critical that we address race, that we address sexism, that we address ableism, uh, 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 right? And that's because that is a formative process, right? If that becomes core and central to our discourse, if it becomes a habit of our being together, that we listen to our voices and acknowledge our positions and we, we, we dialogue around those things, we are transformed and formed by that practice. And this is how we, we do this radical work of making the academy more, more inclusive, more, more radical and and how we build knowledge together all that shit that makes me so excited <laughs> no it, as it should and so everything that you just said right there let let's go back to the book for a second yes hooks writes multiculturalism compels educators to recognize the narrow boundaries that have shaped the way knowledge is shared in the classroom it forces all of us to recognize our complicity in accepting and perpetuating biases of any kind Students are eager to break through barriers of knowing. They are willing to surrender to wonder of relearning and learning ways of knowing that go against the grain. When yes. we as educators allow pedagogy to be radically changed by our recognition of a multicultural world, we can give students the education they desire and deserve. We can teach in ways that transform consciousness, creating a climate of free expression that is the essence of a truly liberatory liberal arts education. Yes. Take that career focus. Anyway, um, leave that in there. So what I want to say, and, and it's not a bad thing. Right. These are different things. Yes. Let's talk about being well-rounded. Hold on, because yes. I want to talk about this. The book title, Teaching right. to Transgress. Right. Right. Yeah. Teaching as a practice of freedom. Yeah. Think about revolutions. Yeah. We talk about this as this revolutionary way of looking at this. Why do people even revolt? What What is the main desire in any revolution? Right. Freedom. Yeah. Right. It's a strong desire. Yeah. You put people in a classroom. They, they 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 want to be free. They they want to break out of it. Yeah, and they they want to even break out of the classroom while they're in the classroom. And the breaking out can mean they remain in the physical classroom, but they break out of the bounds and and and, and the boundaries that are established by that discipline. Yeah. The reason we read Shakespeare, the reason we read Toni Morrison, the reason we read Hemingway, the reason we read anyone we read. The reason we know anything we know is because there was a practice in freedom. There was a revolution started mm -hmm. by that writer. There was mm -hmm. a change in, in the style, in the, the approach, and, and maybe not even a change in message. These messages are pretty universal, and they carry on throughout time. But the way that they're conveyed has always adapted to what the populace needed at the time to let it hit differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
that there's a lot you said there that I want to respond to. <laughs> but I also kind of want to start wrapping up. <laughs> let me so let me choose this. A black girl eating dinner at a white family's dinner table was a transgression and a practice of freedom. And, th and this is sort of why Hooks tells us that story. Us requiring our students to speak in our classrooms is not comfortable. It's a transgression against the sort of traditional form of, I am the teacher, I stand at the front and I lecture and you are the student, you sit in the back and you listen. But it's, it's a revolt. It's a revolt against maybe your own personal comfort. It's a revolt against the sort of the whiteness of that classroom space, the tradition of that classroom space, right? So it disrupts white supremacy in that way. And it transforms the classroom. So, so I, I, I've been hanging on to this, this passage on 41. This is in the middle of embracing pedagogy. Um, uh, so she's talking about cultural codes and the need to learn cultural codes. And she says, to teach effectively a diverse student body, I have to learn these codes. And so, and so do students. This act alone transforms the classroom. The sharing of ideas and information does not always progress as quickly as it may in more homogenous settings. Often professors and students have to learn to accept different ways of knowing new epistemologies in multicultural settings. And what I hear from that is an embrace of the struggle of listening, the struggle of sharing when it's not comfortable, the patience required of a, of a whole group who have other things to do and who are distracted by all kinds of other responsibilities, but nonetheless devote their attention to listening and that struggle. And what I hear expressed overall through all that stuff is love. It's, it's a love for each other. It's a love for uh, it's a selflessness. Let me just put it that way. At the very least, it's a selflessness, a, a, a decision to prefer someone else for the sake of of this work, right? Of learning together, of, of yeah, of being more inclusive, yeah, of revolting. Yeah, I feel like that's all I have for today. All right, perfect. Two chapters. That's pretty good for us. <laughs> Can't wait for the next ones. I know. If you heard anything in this episode that has you thinking about how you teach, why you teach, or if anything made you feel joyful or even mad, like you just yelled at your dishes or whooped while you were walking your neighborhood. I've done those things. <laughs> then we really want to hear from you. You can find us on the Twitter at Safe Topics. Let us know how you're responding to today's book stuff. Like, what did we miss? Or what did we totally get right? Or what questions did we raise for you? And best of all, how are you thinking about your teaching and students? We'll update what we're reading so you can read along if you want. And your feedback will shape our discussions as we go. We may even read some comments in the episodes to come. And not just the nice ones. Safe Topics is a safe setting for dangerous topics. That's right. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe. We've never really asked people to do that before. I know. I think it's cool, though. We're ready to be rated and subscribed-ed. Yeah, and big thanks to Kelly Burnett and the rest of the Safe Topics team for editing, producing, promoting, and all the other wonderful backstage stuff you do. <laughs> and thank you for listening.